It is uh, good to be here this morning. Uh, I first just want to say thank you to uh, Ted and Robert uh, for um, all that they have done for me uh, personally and for my family. And uh, it is a great joy uh, to be able to find such uh, unity and love and closeness even in a short amount of time. And uh, it has been a great blessing to my, my family and not just them. Uh, I have seen uh, God's fruit in them uh, demonstrated in the flock that they lead. And uh, I am so thankful um, that God has brought us uh, here um, as uh, just people who are joining in the work um, as of now. And uh, we look forward to seeing what God is going to do. Um, and I also want to just thank God for the opportunity to stand up and preach His Word. Um, one of my uh, greatest passions is to declare uh, the gospel, the truth about who God is and how that affects you. And uh, there is uh, an awesome passage that we get to look at this morning. So if you would turn with me um, in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John 10. Uh, we are walking through the book of John. Um, so last week, Robert uh, taught John 10, 1 through 21. And today, uh, my assignment is John 10, 22 through 42. And uh, we are going to walk through it uh, verse by verse. But first, let us pray and ask God to speak. Father, we come uh, before you recognizing that you are King and you are Lord. and um, You are seated uh, far above um, all things. We are dependent upon you. We thank you for your Son, uh, Jesus Christ, who has come who has uh, taken on flesh so that we might uh, see and touch and hear you. God, we just ask that you would uh, speak through your word this morning. Um, God, that you would mold and shape your people. Um, God, if there is someone here that is dead in their sins, that you would raise them to uh, life. Um, God, that there would be belief where there is uh, and has been unbelief. God, I just ask that you would uh, use me this morning as your uh, mouthpiece to declare your word. Um, and we do so recognizing that it is by your power alone uh, that anything eternal uh, of value will have to be done by the work of your spirit. So God, we humbly bow ourselves before you and your word. And we ask that you would pierce our hearts and transform our lives for your name's sake. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, it is, a, as I said, a privilege to be here. And as we get to the text in John 10, um, verses 22, the Bible tells us in verse 22 that this is the Feast of Dedication. Um, we don't know how long it was um, between the conversation in the first 21 verses and the conversation we're about to read, but we know that it's within at least two months, and based on the context, it's probably relatively close. Um, some scholars would say it happened maybe earlier that day or the day before because John picks up with it. I mean, he's expecting everybody there to know the reference he's going to make to him being the shepherd. Um, if you read through this text, as we're going to point out, I'm going to reference your mind there. Um, the title of the sermon is, I and the Father are one. Um, this is what Jesus is putting forward. This is what he has been putting forward for the first uh, 10 chapters. The whole book of John is Jesus coming and saying, me and the Father are one. I am sent from the Father. 
But they are uh, in this group of people who resist that. They do not believe that claim. The argument is, uh, show us signs. Do these miracles. Prove to us. And so what we are trying to say is, in this text, Jesus is claiming the conversation is about whether or not Jesus is who he claims to be. And what he claims to be is that him and the Father are one. And so you need to just know a little bit of context coming into chapter 10, verses 22. And when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, uh, there are some connotations about his deity, right? But the main emphasis here is that the Father's work is his work. I mean, if you go through the book of John, you could remember passages where he says things like, I do my Father's work. I do only what I see my Father doing. I am committed and obedient to the Father. Whatever the Father commands me to do, I am doing it. In this particular text, in this illustration of God or Jesus being the shepherd, he takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. And in the reference, the the work that he is specifically pointing to all throughout John, and specifically using this illustration of the shepherd, is that in the Old Testament, there was this prophecy. God said, I am going to one day gather all my sheep. They are scattered abroad, but I'm going to bring them into one flock from from many nations, from from all different people groups. I've got people, last week uh, we studied, that Jesus says, look, there 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 are sheep that are mine that are not of this flock, and I must bring them. And so here we have the context of this conversation is this, this looking to the work of God that he is going to come and he's going to redeem and he's going to ransom and he's going to bring into his people his sheep. You might remember passages as we've gone through the book of John um, where Jesus says, I, I know my sheep and I call them and they come to me. Um, those whom the Father gave me, right, I do not lose one of them. I know them by name. I call them by name. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he he is making this, this, he's got this specific thrust, is that God has promised to do this work, and I am the one here to fulfill it. I am the one doing the work of gathering the sheep and bringing them in. That's what I'm here to do. So in this text, you'll see he says, my sheep hear my voice. He, he kind of quotes back and summarizes what took place at the beginning of chapter 1 or chapter 10. And so when we come to the text, this is what we're looking for. I, this claim, I and the Father are one, and the response to that claim. Um, you'll notice that throughout this book, and in this text particularly, you get two responses to this claim by Jesus. There are two responses to this claim. The first is belief, and the second is unbelief. Um, If we did it in order of the amount of people, more probably in the unbelief than in the belief. But there are two responses. When Jesus shows up, when Jesus reveals God to men, there are two categories of people. It, it, It divides humanity into two categories, and that category is belief and unbelief. I mean, you see this all through the book of John. So in John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13, he says this, He, being Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verse 3, we see the same division of believing and unbelieving. Or in chapter 3, he says, And this is the judgment 
Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. This goes on in chapter 4 and 5. You remember the, the woman at the well, and she is presented. Jesus shows up and reveals himself and makes the claim, I am of God. Right? I have come to give you water, to drink, to have life. And she believes, and then the surrounding uh, men in the neighborhood, right, they believe as well. And it says this, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard of ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not long after that incident in Samaria, Jesus is encountering some other people, and he said they, this is the response that he gets in the next chapter. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, Jesus came and made this claim, I am sent from God, I am of God, and the response he got was twofold, believing and unbelieving. In this same text, we see the same division. I'm going to give it to you so you'll see it as we walk through. You see unbelief in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself gone. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Not only do you see the unbelief in this text, you'll see it when we, when we dig in in just a minute, you also see belief though. Verse 41 and 42, and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. See, we need to understand that when God shows up, when Jesus comes, when God reveals himself, when his word is spoken like it is today, Claims about God are made. The the light comes. We respond in one of two ways. Man responds in belief and unbelief. Why is this text relevant? You are either believing or you are unbelieving. You fit into one of these two categories. God has given you the privilege of hearing the gospel being preached. Many of you have heard it from the time you were little, like myself. But every single one of us this morning fits into a category of one of these two, and that is they either believe that Jesus is who he said he was, or they reject or they are unbelieving of who Jesus says that he is. When God reveals himself accurately to us, we either cling to it by faith or we reject it with unbelief belief. You and I fit in one of these two. Not only do you and I fit in one of these two, but everybody sitting in this room and everybody that we go to work with and everybody in our schools, the people around the world fit into one of these two categories. Every single person, my daughters, right, fit in one of these categories. The people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, the people that you are, not the people, hopefully, okay, just the person that you are married to, all right? Um, they, they fit into one of these two categories. You and everybody else right now exist as either a believer or an unbeliever. 
Number three, this text is relevant because the Bible says, John tells us in chapter 21, that he wrote this so that if you are unbelieving, you might believe. He says, I wrote this letter to you so that you might believe. I testify to you what God has done in Christ so that you would go from unbelieving to believing. You see, this text is going to help us for ourselves, hopefully through God and his Holy Spirit, to move us from not believing to believing. It's also relevant for us to believe as we engage people who are unbelieving and we hope to see them become believing. I don't know about you, but I hope you share with me a a heart for our children. My children are born unbelieving. And I want to learn from here, what is John doing? What is John saying? How is John helping us get from unbelieving to believing? Why should you care which group you're in? There's a lot of groups that I'm in that I don't really care, okay, one way or the other. But why should we care if you were in the unbelieving or the believing? Why should you care if the person you work with is believing or unbelieving? There's lots of reasons I could give you, but I'm going to just give you the two main, main thrusts of the whole book of John. Number one, those who believe have eternal life. You see, the difference between the unbelieving and the believing is that those who believe have eternal life and they will not perish. You see, the believers have the knowledge of God and they are secure in Christ. The unbelieving perish. The unbelieving do not have life. The Bible tells us that the unbelieving will experience a first death that is physical and a second death that is uh, abandonment or exclusion from the presence of God for eternity. Not only, though, is uh, we have this eternal life, but it even gets a little deeper, even gets a little uh, sweeter, and that eternal life is both abundant and fullness of joy. You see, if I'm in the group of unbelieving, I I am captive, I am bound to my sin, and this is the life that I am destined to. I seek something to give me joy, it satisfies temporarily, and then it goes away. But when I am a believer, I have the knowledge of Christ, and I have eternal abundant joy. John says that I came so that you might have abundant life. He prays in chapter 17 of John, I, God, I want them to know you. Why? So that my joy will be in them and their joy may be full. You see, when we come to this text, it's really relevant to you and I because our joy depends upon it. It's really important because our, my child's joy depends upon what group they are in. So when you come to the text, we should care Because you and I are in a group of unbelieving or believing, and eternal life and abundant joy are at stake. The aim of this sermon, I'm going to tell you where I'm going, and then we'll walk through the text. I've got four questions that I'm going to seek to answer for you. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one, because that's what John does, and then we are going to kind of walk through the the other three. The first one is this, why do unbelievers not believe? Why do unbelievers not believe? not believe. Number two, why do the believers believe? Number three, how does the answers to the first two questions help us understand or know Jesus is the Christ? And then lastly, how does it instruct us as we follow follow Jesus as Lord? Question number one, why do believers 
um, not believe. If you turn with me in the Bible to John chapter 10, verse 22, he says this. And at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus first comes to this, 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 this group of people. They gather around him. He's in, it's winter. The Feast of Dedications is also Hanukkah, right? Um, so they are in the middle of the winter. Um, it's most likely why he's inside, right? It's cold. And they gather around him, and they begin to strike up or push this conversation a little farther than it was in chapter, uh, the first part of chapter 10. And so Jesus, they come with this uh, this kind of antagonistic. Most people believe that they were not curious. They were trying to get him to make a clear declaration that had a political uh, uh, context or connotation so that they could get their, the Romans involved, right? Um, but either way, whether it's curiosity or whether, they were tr- whether it was trickery, they come with this assertion. They come with this statement. Jesus, the reason we don't believe is because you have not spoken plainly. You have not been clear. You haven't, been, uh, you, you haven't made it known to us. Why don't you speak to us in plain language? And, and there's good reason for what they said here because in chapter 10, at the beginning, uh, Jesus says, I spoke to them in figuratively, figurative speech. All right? And so they are saying, do away with that figurative speech. Tell us plainly you are the Christ. You are the anointed one sent from God to do his work. And so Jesus comes to them and he corrects them. First, he says, the problem, your unbelief does not rest um, outside of you. The cause of your unbelief, you can't point a finger outside of you. It is not that I have failed in some insufficient way. Look, look, at me, look with me and notice what he says. Jesus 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Jesus says, stop a second. The problem is not me here. I have been very clear about who I am. I have been very clear, and if you study the book of John, you you realize that he has been very clear. He's been so clear that in chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews even make the statement, we are going to kill him because he claims to be God. You see, all throughout the book, it's said over and over again that Jesus has made it unmistakably clear, I am the anointed one. I am Christ. And so what Jesus does here is he turns it around. And he says, no, 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 no. The problem of your unbelief does not exist outside of you. We see this all through the scriptures and the prophets. The prophets come and they, God says through the prophets, look, I have spoken openly and I have spoken plainly. My word is not far from you. It is close and near. The problem is within you. The problem is your heart. Jesus says here, look, it's not that I I didn't even just tell you, I've actually shown you. I did not just say, hey, I am the Christ, but you can look at the works that I have done, and they testify to me. John said that the works were so many that if he had just written, if they wrote them down, that he imagined it would not even be able to be contained in the entirety of the earth. See, Jesus here corrects them and says, no, no, no. The problem of your unbelief is not in me. 
The problem of your unbelief is not outside of you. And then he goes on to say, the problem is with you. Look at what he says in verse 26. Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, and here's why. Because you are not among my sheep. He says, look, the the problem with you, the the reason you don't believe is you are not mine. He said, Daniel, he said, the problem lies with me. How do we get there? I'm going to show you. Turn with me to, actually it might be on the screen. It is on the screen. John 8, 42 through 47, Jesus makes a similar statement. He says to the Jews, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you go back to the Old Testament, Jesus says, here's the law. I've set before you life, and I've set before you death. I've set before you blessing. I've set before you cursing. But you are not going to obey me because you cannot. But one day I'm going to come, and what am I going to do? I'm going to change you on the inside. Jesus is saying here, he's pointing to the problem. The problem rests within them. They cannot bear to hear the truth. They they cannot. Their, Their nature is so opposed to God that when the truth is clearly in front of them, they cannot bear to accept it as reality. You and I know that we, we do this, right? right? When, when, when somebody is on our, our bad list, right, we can't see anything good in them, right? You with me? Or when you're in an argument with, God forbid you ever have an argument with your wife, but if you, if you have an argument with somebody, right, and the truth is becoming clearer and clearer that they are right and you are wrong, but it means too much for your pride that you cannot bear the truth. You, you with me? Jesus is saying, look, it's not that the truth has not been presented clearly. It's that within your own heart, you cannot bear the truth that I proclaim. Romans chapter 1 says it like this. He says, God made himself clearly known so that man is without excuse. But they willingly exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Why? Because they loved creation rather than the creator. See, all throughout the scriptures, God is telling us, look, unbelief, the problem of unbelief is not on God. The problem of unbelief is not on your upbringing. It's not on uh, the society that we live in or the culture. The problem of your unbelief rests in you. You cannot bear the truth that I am speaking. Um, we use words like love. And John, I love how he uses words like love and hatred. You think he would use different words like know and understand and ignorance. But he switches all the time from knowing to this language of love and hostility. And so in chapter 3, Jesus says that the Son of Man, you know, he's lifted up, right? The Son of Man, just like the serpent, he's lifted up. And, and this is the judgment, though. The light has come into the world. And it's not that they didn't see it. It's not that it wasn't clearly demonstrated. But what? They loved darkness rather than light. 
The problem of unbelief is not that we don't have enough facts to go on. The problem of unbelief rests in us. We, by nature, man's flesh, his mind is hostile to God and set against him. So you need to understand that when Jesus comes, he gives us a negative answer. The problem is not outside of us. The problem actually lies within us. This leads us to ask a question. What about man's nature and God's character or revelation or truth stirs up such hostility? I think sometimes we read scripture that we don't, the things that are supposed to be surprising, they don't really surprise us. You know what I'm saying? We get so familiar with things that we don't, they don't, they don't catch our attention and they should. And one of them is right here in this text and that is these people hear Jesus' claim and they are ready to kill him. Have you ever been angry? Right? Just think, when's the last time you've been a little angry? Have you been angry enough to say something hurtful? Right? Yes. Okay, I have. Have you ever been angry enough to hurt somebody physically? Right? I have. Okay. Have you ever been angry enough to kill someone? I don't know if I've ever seen that level of anger, thankfully. I don't know if I've ever been in a setting where somebody said something that it was so repulsive that the group picks up stones and are ready to, to, to hand out a mob execution. So I, I think we need to understand and we need to, we need to take time to just consider and ponder that what Jesus is saying in this text, there is something about it. And there is something about their nature that the response, what is stirred up, what is kindled, is enough anger in this group to stone Jesus on the spot. The natural unbelieving person is hostile to the claims of Jesus and what he is making right here. And I think sometimes in our uh, American we're so detached from Jewish culture, we don't quite understand the, the weight of what Jesus is saying. And so one of the things I want to share with you is four truths that Jesus, I believe, makes very clear to them that may not be clear to us, but four truths that are very clear that stir up this reaction of let's stone Jesus. The first one is this. He says, you are not mine. Jesus comes to this group of people and he says, the reason you don't follow me is because you are not mine. Jesus comes and he draws a very clear line of those who are in and those who are out. I, I need to clarify this because there's so much uh, in this group, that, in this text, the whole chapter, and a big emphasis is the doctrine of election. But we don't need to take from this that the people hearing him uh, did not or could not or sometime down the road come to believe. Jesus was not saying to this group of people, to every single individual, right, that their belief is beyond reach for you, right? I, I believe the thrust of what he's saying is that in, in this moment, I'm looking at you, and as I'm assessing where you are, I can make this clear statement. You are not among my sheep. But we, we see later that some of these people in, X, in, in Acts chapter 2 who were a part of killing Christ, they were opposing him, they actually come to believe, right? And so even though there is the, it's strong in this text, the doctrine of election, Jesus is not saying here, none of you will ever follow me and none of you will ever believe me. He is saying, though, this unbelief 
puts you outside the bounds of, you are not my sheep. He draws a distinction. He draws a line. He draws a very hard line. He says, I know this because my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep come to me. And I am presenting myself to you, and right now you are giving me a stiff neck and a hard heart. You see, Jesus, when he confronts unbelief, he does something that we, in, the, in my experience in church anyway, we do the exact opposite. We blur the lines and the distinction to make people feel comfortable, to avoid the conflict. And Jesus says, no, here's what we're going to do. I'm honest, you want me to speak plainly? I'm going to speak very plainly. The reason you don't believe is because there are two groups of people and you are not mine. You are not my people because if you were my people, you would have followed me. You would have heard my voice and you would have come. Jesus says, you are not mine. He draws a clear, distinct line. We, we bristle that, don't we? These Jews, you've got to remember, they, 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 they had heard the promises. God was going to come. He was going to gather his sheep. And what did these Jews assume? We were of God. And so when the Messiah comes, we are on his side. He's going to come, and he's going to draw a stink line around Israel, and he's going to raise us up, and we are going to be victorious. You see, their understanding of God pictured God as for them. They assumed God's friendship or favor with them, and they did so on the basis of their status. They did so on the basis, number one, that they were Jews. They were biological descendants of Abraham. They did so on the basis that they were circumcised on the eighth day, and not only circumcised, but they kept the law. You see, they, they, they took from, they, they drew a different line, not follow Jesus, not believe Jesus, but they begin to put on outward characteristics and say, let's define the people of God this way, and it conforms to what they were. Isn't it funny how in arguments, even in our culture, we always think that we are on the moral right. We always think that we are the right in favor with him, and everybody else is out here. But when God shows up to the unbelieving, he redefines the lines. He redraws them with great clarity, and he says, this is the line. You hear my voice and you come to me. You follow me. And these people bristled that to hear that they were not included, to hear that they were not of God. Caused them great hostility. Number two, hard truth number two. You are dependent on me for mercy. You are dependent upon me for mercy. God shows up and he says, look, you are under condemnation. You are under my wrath. And I'll show you where I get that in just a second. If you look at me in verse 27, he says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Hand, I and the Father are one. Jesus, Jesus makes this claim. God the Father's work is certain and it's unstoppable. And when people hear, when my sheep hear my voice, they come to me. And if you put this in the context of all of John, John God is saying, Jesus is saying, salvation, this bringing the people together, it is my work and it is certain and it is unstoppable. And so he looks at the Jews who are unbelieving 
And what becomes very clear to them, especially in the rest of the context, and I'll show you where I get it in just a second. They are not in this balance of are we, are we not, is there something we can do? God is making a definitive statement. You are out here and you are under condemnation and only by me and my shepherd, only through me and God and our work, right? Only through our mercy. You are dependent. There is nothing you can do besides cry out to me for mercy. If you look with me at John 12, verse 37 through 40. While they are responsible for their unbelief, it needs to be made very clear that their unbelief is judgment from God. Verse 37 of chapter 12, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed? Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been, reve- been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You need to understand that everybody, all of humanity, because of our willing rejection of God, right, is judged. We are, God's wrath is revealed and that he has given us over to darkness. These men willingly rejected Jesus while at the same time their unbelief was an act of judgment by God. And the only freedom they could find, the only hope these Jews had was the mercy of God. You see, when Jesus shows up, he says, you are not among me, and I'm doing this work. And what it does for them is it puts them in a place where all their only hope is this, God, have mercy on us. We are dependent upon you. If, you. if I had time, I'd take you back and I'd show you the different Old Testament passages, but Jesus says, or, or God speaks to the prophets, and he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to lead people from captivity. I'm going to bring them out of darkness. You see, the Jews thought Jesus was going to come and free them from Rome. God sent Jesus to come and free them from their sin. And Jesus here says, look, you've got one hope. If will take you back to chapter, at the beginning of chapter 10. I'll show you the connections there. But you've got one hope, and it is me, and I am calling my sheep, and I will not lose any of them. Mercy is, we are dependent upon mercy. Number three, he says in verse 27 through 30, I won't, do it. I won't read it for the sake of time, so I read it twice, but he says this, my sheep hear my voice, they come, and I'm going to do this work, I'm going to bring them, and no one is going to snatch them out of my hand, no one's going to have victory and stop my, un, my, or my saving work. He said, where do you get in there that Jesus is going to die? Well, you remember, this is a summary of the first part, his first argument, what he was talking about in the beginning of chapter 10, and he says this, he says, I'm going to bring my sheep. There are some that are not among my sheep. I'm going to bring them, and how am I going to bring them? I am the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for my sheep. You see, the Jews here couldn't get over this reality. God is powerful, and he's unstoppable, and he's going to bring victory, and yet God sends a man who's humble, and he's clothed in humanity, and he's going to die. 
Later, they talked to him and they said, Jesus, how is it that you claim to be God? And in the Old Testament, it tells us that the Son of Man is going to live forever. And yet you say that you are going to You see, Jesus came and he says, look, not only am I going to die, but if you're going to be my sheep, you're going to have to follow me, and you too are going to have to die. Because they couldn't understand, in their understanding of God, God was going to come and give them the world. But God said, I'm going to send my sheep, my shepherd, and he's going to give you God himself. You see, this was a hard statement for them. All their hopes, all their dreams, everything they thought about God and what God was going to do was wrapped up in a man who said he was God and he was doing it, and yet it looked nothing like what they had imagined. Um, chapter 53 of Isaiah, he says that he came, he had no, he had no comeliness. He, he, he didn't look favorable. Nobody looked on him with favor. He was despised and he was rejected. He was, he was a man of sorrows. He wasn't even like worthy to be looked at, right? He, was, he wasn't good looking. There was nothing shiny about Christ. He, he was power wrapped in weakness. He was glory wrapped in humility, And these people said, how is it that you, a man, make yourself to be God? But in reality, Jesus was God who had made himself man. You see, and Jesus makes this hard statement. I need you to follow me. I need you to come with me. I need you to know that I'm the trust that I am God sent to you. And this is what I look like. I look like a man stripped of his clothes hanging on a cross. You see, their trajectory that they had in mind was one of elevation. But Christ, his trajectory for glory was one that went downward. He he condescended. He, being God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And he became obedient even to the point of what? The point of death, even the death of of a cross. You see, this represented for them a a turning back, a dying to their dreams, their thoughts, their imaginations. Their their hopes were that God was going to come and restore an earthly kingdom, and yet he had come to restore and to bring into existence an eternal heavenly kingdom. this, this, This rubs the unbelieving man wrong. You see, we look for the big, the growing. I was reminded of this when uh, we le- I left Forestville, right? I never had to look for a church, ever, okay? Maybe like freshman year in college. And yet, I'm sitting here looking around, and, and it makes you think about what, where's glory, what is good? Right? Big, great, growing, people that meet you at the front, right? What, 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 is, what defines good? And so there's a, there's a lot of things. I had a lot of conversations but it, rub, it pushes back against our normal thought and thinking when God says, no, I have placed glory in a container that is unattractive. Maybe, maybe glory and what is good is hidden where only people who can discern what is right and good would find it. This statement was hard for them. We see that it was hard for them because when Caiaphas makes a, makes a statement in chapter 12, or chapter 11, he says, look, let, it, let, let, let one man die because people are going to believe, start to believe him. And when they start to believe him, the Romans are going to take away what? Our power and our status and our place. God says, no, I come to die and I've called you to follow me to the cross. 
Last one is this. I am your judge. I am your judge. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man make yourself gone. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Here's what Jesus says. I don't have time, but he quotes Psalms chapter 82. And here's what he says. He says, look, in Psalms 82, God uses the term gods for people like you. You were, you were in authority, and your role was to execute God's judgment, his right judging, his right leading. He put them in authority, put them in leadership. He gave them the word of God, and he said, go lead my people and execute justice. Right? He says, if God would use the word gods for people like you, right, whom he's given his word to execute, would it not be most appropriate for him to use the term son of God for me whom God has actually set apart to come and make justice secure among you? Jesus flips it around. They want to arrest him and bring him to the council to figure out who he is and what his status is. And God turns it all around and says this, you've mistaken something. If God will refer to you as God's, it is most appropriate that I who stands above you as judge would be called the son of God. We don't like to be judged. We like to be the judger. You with me? And God says, no, no, no. If you're going to come to me, you're going to have to receive me as judge. You don't have to put me amongst all the other gods and decide which one of us is best. You come to me recognizing that you come before my throne, and my throne is one of judgment. I am judge. You are not judge. Question number two, and I told you I'm going to spend all my time there, and I'm just going to give you these very quick. Question number two, why do believers believe? 40 verse, chapter 10, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Why do the believers believe? Because God, when his truth is spoken, works miraculously to create life. You see that here? He says, put it in contrast with where Jesus was. He moves across the Jordan. What happens? The people see him and they say what? The testimony about Christ that we heard from John was true. We see this all throughout the scriptures. We see it even in John himself who says, I write these things to you so that what? So that you might believe he is who he says he was. Second, or second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians says it like this. He says, we thank God because we see your faith and we see your love. Therefore, we know that you are the elect of God and we know that the word of God came to you with power by the Holy Spirit. How do I believe and how do you believe? The word of God being spoken plainly and clearly and the Holy Spirit moving wherever it will, creating life 
and producing men and women who are born of God. Number three, or question number three, how do the answers to the first two questions help us know Jesus is the Christ? Reminder of John's purpose. This is not shocking to us, but it was clear to them. How does anybody break through such hard-heartedness and such hard unbelief and such hostility towards God? It is only the power of God that can break and bring. And so when you see faith, we should respond like what I just said a minute ago in 1 Thessalonians. When I see faith, I know something. I know that they are chosen by God and they are brought to salvation by God. Jesus, John is making this point. How do we know this is the Christ? Because he showed up and men and women are being brought from darkness into light. This is far greater than any sign of healing, any sign of turning the blind to see and the lame to walk. John is saying, look, Jesus showed up on the scene, the light came, and rather than all of humanity respond and reject God, men and women are being brought from light, from darkness into light. His sheep are being gathered as promised in the Old Testament. How does this instruct us? First, we need to sing for joy. We need to sing with joy. Listen to me, me and you would be just like those hard, hostile Jews, but for the grace of God. Not only I, but we're so individualistic, I think of that in my own life, but my wife, my children will remain in unbelief if not for the grace of God. It is only by his grace and his power that I get the experience of marriage where two people know and enjoy Christ. Where we have life and we have abundant joy, it is not but for him. Number two, guard sound doctrine. Guard sound doctrine. We, we tend to blur doctrine to make people attracted to us. Jesus' approach to evangelism and dealing with unbelief was to define it very clearly and make it very plain. Paul tells the Timothy, he says, guard your doctrine so that you and your people who hear you, their souls will be saved. Teach your children sound doctrine. Know sound doctrine. Be able to judge sound doctrine. Number three, speak the truth about Jesus. Your people will not come to know Jesus if you don't mention him. Um, speak the truth about Jesus. And lastly, inspect yourself. Are you a believer? Jesus tells us we know we're a believer if we hear his voice and we come to him. We hear his voice and we follow. Be careful not to draw other lines. I go to church. I read my Bible. I have a good marriage. I have this or that. The line he draws is, do you follow me? Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you are saving people, that you are bringing people who are bound in darkness into your marvelous light, that you are leading the captive free. Father, I'm thankful that you have done that work in my life. I'm thankful that you have done that work and many others that I get to enjoy fellowship with. God, may we be a people who uh, take 
your truth seriously. God, may we not take a half-hearted, lackadaisical approach to knowing your word and knowing who you are. God, so that we might be able to present it to a world that's squandering or, or wandering around in darkness. God, we ask that you would give us boldness and opportunity to put forward the announcement of your son, Jesus. God, in his word, that he has arrived and he is bringing his sheep into his fold. God, may we go expectantly that as we preach your word and as we teach your word, your spirit will not be unsuccessful in bringing your sheep to yourself. I thank you once again for the opportunity to share your word. And I ask that it would have effect in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.